Welcome to episode 60 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Uh, Michael, uh, what do you think is the story of the week? I think the story of the week is that there really isn't a story of the week. It's, it's pretty slow as far as I'm concerned. No major breaches. Uh, I know you're always interested in legislation, but, you know, I think um, when we actually get legislation passed, then that would be a story. Yeah, I know. You're 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 always skeptical until the very day it passes, and that's probably prudent. Uh, our guest commentator today is Paul Rosenzweig, who's the founder of Red Branch Consulting, a uh, uh, homeland security consulting company, senior advisor to the Chertoff Group, uh, and a former deputy assistant secretary for policy in the Department of Homeland Security where he was the uh, the very best number two uh, that uh, anybody had uh, uh, to uh, my uh, first job as the assistant secretary for policy. So, Paul, welcome. Great, thanks for having me. Uh, well, it's uh, it's good to have you. And uh, don't I get to say what I think the story of the week is? Yes, go ahead. Um, I think it was the hack of Baidu. Um, in in what way was the, is this the hack that sent all of that DDoS attack? Yep. Uh, Baidu was hacked by somebody, probably the Chinese, and all of the Baidu customers, which is essentially everybody in China, wound up getting malware that sent DDoS attacks to GitHub and the Great Firewall.org. Yeah, what uh, I heard is that it was only the non-Chinese users of Baidu who were redirected. Ah, that may GitHub, even be worse. Which meant that uh, you couldn't just block China if you were GitHub because yeah. it was coming from everywhere. So, so, so what we're now seeing is the weaponization of foreign nationals by China. Yeah, pretty impressive. Uh, Actually, yeah, pretty impressive. Good, I mean, good tech as far as I can tell. Um, and, uh, overwhelmed GitHub for a while. And GitHub, uh, GitHub had been publishing some, uh, information of interest to dissenters in China. Uh, uh, but because it has a lot of software uh, and, and development, it's really crucial for people who want to do software development. Uh, um, China could not just block GitHub. That's right. The way that GitHub runs itself, it encrypts the files in a way that means it's an all or nothing for China. They can block the whole thing and deprive all of their developers of uh, access to really important tools, or they got to let it all in, in which case you can find a way to get a translated copy of the New York Times. Yeah, this is. Uh, I think you're right. This is a, a creative approach to uh, <laughs> uh, blocking uh, the uh, or punishing people for uh uh, making information available to Chinese nationals. Uh, uh, and what I'm struck by is how much DDoS, which I think of as sort of a kitty weapon, has turned out to be remarkably valuable to governments. Uh, uh, the Chinese did this, uh, I assume. Uh, the uh, Iranians did a DDoS attack on U.S. banks that was meant to demonstrate that they could do a whole lot worse if, if we didn't come to the table and give them a deal on, uh, on nukes. Uh, uh, and so even though DDoS weapons are kind of I think distinctly second to almost anything else you would do, it, they've turned out to be surprisingly good weapons. Well, it's all economics. They're very cheap to deploy, and the defenses are very expensive because the only way to really fight it is to have a lot, lot of uh, resiliency, a lot of backup capacity that you don't use most of the time, uh, which is all you know, right off the bottom line expense without much 
prospects. So, so it's got a, a high leverage ratio, if you will. Yeah. Okay, great story. I uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with the NSA and DHS, the record holder for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's get started on the news. Uh, um, and uh, because. Um, Paul is so familiar with all these cyber issues. Uh, while there's a couple of issues I do want to uh, uh, interview you about, uh, I'm hoping you'll just jump right in on all of these uh, stories. Uh, um, so um, first story I thought I'd ask uh, uh, Michael about is data retention, which seems to be going in two very different directions uh, internationally. Uh, the Australians embrace it, the Belarusians, if you care, uh, embrace it, uh, and yet half of Europe is in the process of saying, we don't think that we can uh, do data retention, require our telcos to, to uh, and ISPs to uh, retain data because we're not sure that it can be squared with the uh, European Commission uh, Convention on Human Rights. Uh, what's going on, uh, uh, Michael? Yeah, I tell you, this, you know, this, this seesaw effect has been going on for a long time now because there, it took years for a lot of EU countries to pass data retention laws as they were required to by the EU data retention directive. And the data and retention were, directive you know, was like, like within a year of 9-11, wasn't it? It, it was, and it took a long time. Uh, and then there were threats from the EU, uh, against countries that they didn't impose these laws, they'd be, they'd be fined. And eventually, almost all of them, I think, got around to passing the laws. And then the European Court of Justice turns around and strikes down the data retention, uh, retention directive as, as uh, a violation of fundamental human rights. So now you see uh, courts at the national level beginning to strike down the implementation laws in various countries, saying that, that those laws are, are unconstitutional uh, under each country's constitution. And yet, at the same time, you've got a few countries now, as you said, um, started with the UK really last summer, and now more recently, Belarus and Australia uh, passing data retention requirements because they, they're worried that if uh, ISPs and telecoms don't retain metadata, at least, that they're going to be up the creek when it comes to doing a, an investigation, not just for counterterrorism, but but straight law enforcement, the criminal investigations. Yeah. If they don't have the data that they need. I, it... it, it, it strikes me that most of these um, uh, constitutional and human rights objections to the law tend to be at the margins. It would be certainly be possible to, uh, to fix these laws, but not all these countries have the will to do it now that there's no directive that requires it. I think you're right. And what's really strange is that the, the, the legal basis is usually that the laws don't have enough restrictions on the government's ability to access the data pursuant to an investigation. They don't typically spend a lot of time talking about why it's a problem to require companies to retain the data. Uh, it seems to me if you if you were motivated politically to, to have a law in place, you would require companies to retain the data, but you would put pretty strict limitations on how the government can get it and in what circumstances. Well, we, we, the U.S. Is, does not look to be going to data retention anytime soon. It used to be that, uh, um, we didn't need it because data retention, uh, um, is just, is mainly designed to overcome the privacy rules that require you to get rid of data immediately, uh, uh, unless you're obliged to keep it. And data retention would have obliged those, uh, those companies to keep it. In the U.S., 
uh, law enforcement and national security could kind of signal about how much time they wanted companies to keep the data, and the companies uh, tried to accommodate that up to a point. Now that uh, that sort of um, modest accommodation isn't working, and so uh, either the U.S. is going to collect have to collect the data a la 215, or it's going to have to look at data retention itself. But in the current climate, I don't see that happening. So, yeah, although we're, we're facing the sunset of, of 215 now, and, um, uh, you know, it's going to be a real problem. Yeah, May, May 22nd. But I agree with you. I don't see it happening. May 22nd, Congress goes out of, uh, uh, off on uh, recess until June 1. So it'll come back the day that the, uh, 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 the, the, the sunset occurs, but I don't think they'll be, uh, in a mood for a crisis on that day. So as a practical matter, if they don't do it by the 22nd of May, I, I, I think we'll have a lapse. Um, so I, here's another story where we're kind of catching up on something that, uh, uh we've covered before. Um, uh, China has been saying we want our banks to buy indigenous equipment that is more secure, uh, and, uh, uh, pressing, uh, forward with a regulation on that, that the data has to be, uh, uh, controllable, uh, and secure. Um, and the U.S., after criticizing uh, China a lot, has really um, raised the question whether uh, it ought to uh, demand that uh, um, uh, China justify that measure under the WTO. I'm not sure that's the ideal solution, but they've sent a letter, which is sort of the first stage in a WTO dispute, asking China to justify what it's doing, or at least to explain what it's doing. Ooh, they've sent a letter. I'm yeah. scared now. Yeah. What did we used to call that in government? Was it when the State Department sent those letters a marshmallow? Yeah. <laughs> idle threats is what I th- called them when I was a kid. You know. Well, it's not completely idle, right? No, because it is. Not. It is a step down the road to bring a WTO case. It's just that I think that's a uh, not an impressive threat. Uh, uh, there's a, there are national security reasons to uh, be cautious about where your IT comes from. Uh, and it's not exactly something that we can say um, isn't appropriate because we've said that about Huawei. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we as a government uh, stand for the proposition that it's okay to discriminate against suspect technology. Right. Uh, we, we purposefully don't buy ZTE and Huawei. Uh, the only reason we disagree with the Chinese is that they're making up the fact that that our our technology is suspect, and we're not making up the fact about them. But, you know, that's not something that the WTO is going to resolve very readily. I think that's right. So, uh, for the for the WTO to say, oh yeah, China hacks the Americans, but the Americans don't hack China, uh, would be uh, politically and diplomatically very difficult, and probably not true. Yeah. No. I I I will guarantee. Well, I don't make guarantees, but. Five years from now, you'll have me on, and we'll be talking about how China has won in the WTO on a national security exemption. Yeah. And and it's not clear to me that the U.S. will be completely unhappy if they did, because the U.S. will want broad national security exemptions itself. So maybe this is a bank shot, and we're actually trying to get a a rule of law through an attack on China. We want them to raise it so that uh, uh, it's more likely to actually be adopted by the WTO. Boy, are we Machiavellian. Oh, God bless those USDR guys. Uh, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. I don't think we're that good. No, unfortunately, probably not um well and in any event my guess is they'll they'll 
uh, demand answers, they'll get answers, but they won't take it any further. Um, uh, so there's a couple of weird cases that I, I, I have to ask you about, Michael, because uh, they're such odd facts, uh, uh, but they're on important laws. There's a intercept clause uh, and uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is an immunity for a lot of providers of online information. Uh, but the cases in which those claims arose, even though they look like they're important decisions, strike me as pretty weird. Can you explain them? Yeah, very weird, the, especially the 230 case. Um, you know, Section 230 basically gives a website immunity for content that's published by someone else on the site. Uh, but website operators have, have always been nervous that if you get a case with really bad facts, you know, it involves child exploitation uh, or something like that, that courts will be begin to cut back on the immunity. Well, in this case... It wasn't someone who, a child who was exploited on the site that brought a case against the site for liability, but it was actually someone who exploited a child who said, um, it's the, it's the site's fault that I exploited the child. So this guy basically is involved in a three-way liaison that included a 13-year-old child, uh, and then he sued the, the site, Grinder, a dating site, saying, that the, the site negligently failed to enforce its own age restriction, and that's why he ended up getting busted for exploitation of a minor. Uh, and the, the Federal District Court in New Jersey said, no, 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 you're essentially trying to hold the site responsible for publishing the, the content of the minor's communications, and that's precisely what the site is uh, immune from. Uh, to me, you know, I've always had problems with the jurisprudence under 230, even though even though many of our uh, clients like it because it is so broad. But it, in many ways, it's it's often illogical. In this case, to me, seemed like a pretty good example. That the suit was not that based on the site's publication of the the minor's communications. It it was based on the notion that the site didn't enforce its own rules. But he met uh, he met this course. kid, right? He, he he met the kid. He must have realized. Like, well, he was he was so emotionally involved at that point he couldn't he couldn't give it up. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't know. I, I tend not to like to read these things. <laughs> isn't isn't this like the murder uh, like like the kid who kills his his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan? Yeah, that's a, it. It it's, it, it's a, gives a new meaning to chutzpah as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and maybe maybe that's the answer. Uh, uh, the the court was looking for for a hammer to beat this guy with, and Section 230 looked handy. Uh, maybe it doesn't mean as much to, as all that. The other case, though, was an appellate decision from the 11th Circuit on what it means to intercept stuff and when you're liable for doing an intercept, and and that sounded like it was carefully considered, inconsistent with most of the other uh, case law, and odd. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, under the Federal Wiretap Act and a, and a bunch of state laws that are based on the Wiretap Act, uh, there's an exception to the general prohibition on, on wiretapping of communication. If you use equipment that was supplied by a communications provider uh, and you use that equipment in the normal course of your business. And in, in this case, a, a company... Uh, had a general policy of recording its outgoing calls to customers about uh, credit card accounts. Uh, 
and they were sued for monitoring the communication. And the 11th Circuit said, no, that that recording of the communication fell within the business use exception to the prohibition on wiretapping because it wasn't the recording device that did the recording. It was the telephone extension that was supplied by the telephone company that did the intercept. Yeah. But if that's the case, then you can record any outgoing call, right? Because everybody's on some kind of device, and you can say, well, that's what's doing the intercepting. I just attached my recorder to the intercepting device, right? Yeah, it's very strange. And as you noted, it seems inconsistent with the decisions of at least a couple of other circuits. And the 11th Circuit acknowledged that inconsistency but said it was bound by prior 11th Circuit precedent until the 11th Circuit overturns that en banc or the Florida courts change their view on Florida law. It's bound by that precedent. So really it's going to be interesting because this law, the Florida law, is so similar to the Federal Wiretap Act and to other state laws that are based on the Wiretap Act. This decision, even though it's unpublished, could have some persuasive effect elsewhere. Well, so it only matters. I mean, ordinarily you've got the consent of one party if you're doing this because, you know, it's your phone. You're the party who consented. It only probably matters in two-party states, doesn't it? I think that's right, yeah, where you need the consent of all the parties unless you have another exception. I think that's right. That's about a dozen jurisdictions. And so maybe this is just part of the long, slow, and erratic decline of the two-party consent rule, which is just getting beaten up around the country because it makes so little sense in a world where recording calls is so easy. We're seeing that with the information sharing provision, which the bill that's going through Congress now is really in part designed to overcome two-party state rules that say, you know, you have to have both parties' permission to monitor incoming communications, which, of course, would be nuts. You'd have to have the spammer's permission. You'd have to have the hacker's permission. And no one does it. So everybody's in violation of the two-party consent rule. Yeah, I think you're right with regard to electronic communications. Here it's a telephone communication where at least it's easier to envision actually getting the consent of all the parties to a phone call. Less clear how you do that when you're talking about communications to and from a computer. All right. Well, I do want to talk about this legislation some, and I'm hoping Paul's au courant with it. The last major step in the House's passage of this bill was a manager's amendment, which could just as easily have been the EFF amendment, an effort to take another step toward the privacy groups, which, of course, they immediately pocketed and spurned. But we now have a bill on the House side. We have a bill on the Senate side. And, you know, they're in recess. But when they come back, it's going to be teed up, I think. What do you think of the bill? Well, as your intro lead-in suggests, 
less and less all the time. Uh, you know, back when we first started with the idea of information sharing, um, there was some uh, currency to the view that that enhanced threat and vulnerability sharing might actually produce um, uh, a measurable increase in the security, especially at, at the low-hanging fruit level. Mm-hmm. But, you know, increasingly, uh, the types of attacks that we're really concerned about are not you know, of, of that nature. Uh, you know, this bill, uh, my, my best analysis of this bill is that it would have done absolutely nothing to protect Sony. Or, or target, or, uh, I mean, yeah. So, so we're, we're straining to produce a mouse, um, that cannot climb the mul- the mountain. Or yeah, this something is, like well, that. this is true. You know, the information, uh, sorry, the, uh, uh, intrusion prevention systems that, uh, people have been using for 10 years in private, in the private sector was in the private, privacy groups groused about that endlessly, uh, you know, oh, you're going to be wiretapping, you know, the government is going to see emails that I send to the government. That's mm-hmm. shocking invasion of my privacy. Uh, and, and they, but they successfully stalled it for two administrations until now it's sort of embarrassing not to have intrusion prevention and it's finally going forward. And I think this is the same thing. The, uh, uh, the kind of information you share are Tend to be signatures, mm-hmm. uh, and signatures are great. They were state of the art in 2002, uh, and uh, uh, but now, uh, as people have gotten wise to signatures, uh, the attackers have started using these polymorphic attacks, yeah. uh, uh, and and so the signature doesn't actually tell you what you want to know. The the signatures are relatively useless, at least um, for the top end, right? I mean, you know, the, there's still be some value for the bottom end, you know, right. the the energy yeah, I, I, consortium I never, I never in, say in it's Iowa. Useless. It's just, it's not going to keep out a no. determined attack. But, um, but I, I think what troubles me most about the way that this bill has trended is the, uh, you know, that it signals an increasing lack of seriousness about fundamental things that I thought we'd learned from 9/11. Um, the restriction on the use of of uh, threat and vulnerability information so that it can't be shared right. for other purposes. Except, of course, for child pornography, because that's a special case right. that, you know, right. yeah. that, that is an exception for everything. Um, suggests that we're busy going back to the bad old paradigm of controlling information sharing as a way of protecting privacy, uh, rather than controlling, uh, how the government uses that information and, and auditing it. Um, uh, likewise, the, uh, the demand that uh, the personal information uh, be anonymized, masked out of the shared information, is you know fundamentally uh, an, a demand that we dumb ourselves down, right? Yeah, this is one. Of the, I, to my mind, there's a lot of of kind of dumb stuff in the bill that's in there for political correctness, right? You know, only only child porn is serious enough for us to actually share the information or allow people to use the information for. Um, a, but, you know, that's not the end of the world. Uh, but the, the stuff that I'm worried about is the stuff that I think actually is going to make people stop and think whether they really want to share the information. Because at the end of the day, this gives you an exemption from the requirement that uh, you have a subpoena before you share information with the government. Now, there's only a, a 
handful of industries that are subject to that requirement. The banking industry isn't, and the power industry isn't. If you're in the telecom uh, or uh, uh, electronic uh, services business, then you have to worry about that. Uh, uh, but everybody else can share information now uh, mm-hmm. with the government and everybody else more or less uh, in the most convenient way. Uh, now what this bill does is it says everybody who's sharing information under this provision and taking advantage of this uh, uh, restriction or this exemption uh, must go through this process of anonymizing mm-hmm. the data or screening for – let's see what, what it says is uh, – any information that the uh, uh, sharer reasonably believes at the time of sharing to be personally personal information or information identifying a specific person. Uh, but, and I, I, That's I, almost to everything. Fair, to be fair, it, it can't be directly related to the cybersecurity threat. So if if you've got a you've bad guy, the bad guy, exactly. bad guy you so, can so give so that. So it doesn't up. directly protect bad guys. But uh, I think this is almost insurmountable. I went back. Uh, last year, last week, we had uh, uh, Richard Baitlick on, and he plugged a company called Critical Stack that provides open source Intel. Uh, so I went back and looked at the services that they have, which is basically a whole bunch of people who've collected mm-hmm. uh, 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 signatures of bad IP addresses, bad uh, 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 malware sites, places you don't want to go, places you don't want to accept connections from, things you should blacklist. And they almost all say... We're pretty sure that these are bad sites. We're not absolutely sure. They've just done something suspicious, and we're putting them on this list. Well, at that point, uh, can you honestly say, you know, uh, I have taken reasonable efforts, uh, and I reasonably believe that this information is not directly related to the cyber, or is directly related to the cybersecurity threat? I, I don't think you can. The, the good news is, is that the liability protection that's offered is so so weak and limited that nobody's going to come in under the system. So only if you read this as prohibiting the existing information sharing does it actually harm I, I, I think that's right, although there's a couple of places where they seem to say it without uh, uh, tying it to the exemption. But does that mean people are going to say, I'm sharing this information with you without regard for the federal law on this? I think you kind of have to, right? I, 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 that would be how I – I mean, I would certainly – if I were – counseling a client, I would not take a lot of comfort in the liability protections in the bill as written now. And I would say, share, don't share, but do so for your own reasons, not because of the carrots that, that the non-existing carrots that are offered here. Right. If you think you're getting something from being part of the, uh, the, the NERC anti, anti, uh, cyber, uh, threat consortium, stay in it. You, I don't. I don't think I read this as as making that worse off. I just think it just doesn't make anything better. And as we said, it's the wrong threat at the wrong time. And I. I, I but let me let me raise the practical question. Suppose you're in the NERC uh, uh, cyber threat sharing uh, uh, organization, ISAC, right? yeah. the the ISAO, uh, and uh, somebody says, "Well, I've heard we can get." You know, an immunity, and we can get legal protection from this. Uh, shouldn't we do that? Uh, uh, some people are going to say, "Well, I read the law. I didn't think it really helps. It might hurt. I don't know what my uh, um, uh, screening measures are going to be like." Now you're making a concession, a confession against interest by when you say that. Uh, uh, so you, you've you've taken a perfectly 
functioning ISAO and turned it into a legal debating society. Well, I guess the only really good news is that I don't think it'll pass the Senate. So, right. Well, the Senate has has language that's not far off of this. Uh, well, we'll see. I I. I, I, I agree with you. Anything that enhances illegal uncertainty is fundamentally a bad pl- thing. And we're in a, we're in a place now where people know pretty much what the rules are, especially in the, the highly regulated and, and pretty coordinated industries like finance and, and so maybe it will make it worse by, by enhancing uncertainty. I, you know, if you take a look at this bill, what is it now? Like 47 pages or something yeah. like that? It was 17. When it was first introduced in the House of Representatives for two Congresses four years ago, that tells you everything you need to know about the legislative process. Yeah. Well, I I I will only point at, point to you to one other provision of this. Uh, it is um, paragraph two on page nine. That's probably the easiest. Uh, It says a non-federal entity, a company receiving cyber threat indicator or defensive measure from another company or a federal uh, entity shall comply with otherwise lawful restrictions placed on the sharing or use of such cyber threat indicator or defensive measure by the sharing entity. There's nothing in there that says you only get the benefits of this if you uh, adhere to this restriction. That sounds to me like a new regulation of everybody who shares or receives information um, from anybody. Wow. I hadn't thought about that one. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I'm happy to be uh, uh, educated. But this, I, I, I fear in a scramble... Is, uh, is that designed to, to, to make sure that my contractual obligations follow the information I share that I can't get out of, you know, confidentiality promises yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, I, that I made to my customers if I share with another bank? He can't willy-nilly well, broadcast uh, I, my customers I think to the rest of the world. There is a real question about whether this is going to show up in context other than formal information sharing that everybody will – the consumers will say, well, I shared my address with you on the understanding. Well, I guess that, that's probably not cyber uh, a cyber threat indicator. But you can imagine that there would be things that would technically constitute threat indicators. Uh, you call up your um, uh, your company and say, I, your, your um, credit card company and say, I think I might have been hacked. Uh, uh, can they provide that information? Or can you say, but only you can do this? You can't tell my, uh, uh, my merchants? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, who knows? All right. So uh, it's, it, it's messy. Yes. Uh, there their desperation to be loved by the privacy community and the craziness of some of the... Actually, before you leave, isn't it strange that as the Congress gets more conservative, it becomes more responsive to the privacy community? This is something that they couldn't have gotten out of the... You know, out, out of the last Congress. Right, who, who probably felt more confident about their ability to understand you know, uh, who their friends were and how seriously they had to take this. And, and of course, the, the Democrats don't really have to, to do everything the privacy groups want because the privacy groups are going to vote for them no matter what. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it is, it, it is interesting. Uh, uh, but, you know, you can't underestimate the Amash wing of the, the Republican Party, uh, uh, especially on issues that can be tied somehow to NSA and Snowden. Uh, all right. Um, let me ask uh, you, you uh, 
just came back from ICANN, uh, and you know how I feel about ICANN news, uh, but uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm constantly thinking, you know, there's got to be less here than it sounds like. Um, uh, but there are move, there are movements uh, afoot in ICANN. The, gov- the, the administration has said they're going to change ICANN's status uh, as long as they can stay change it to a status that resembles a purple unicorn. Uh, and so I guess you were over in the last meeting searching for Searching for a purple unicorn, unicorn. yes, indeed. Um, well, you know, I, I guess I sort of begin by thinking that ICANN's a little more important than you do. Uh, uh, my favorite story on that, and it's not directly relevant to what happened in Istanbul, is uh, how much will Steptoe pay to own Steptoe.sucks? Nothing. Nothing. So you don't care. No. Well, that's uh, that, that's my view. I, we, well, know, that's, I, I, that's, I'm going to bet that your managing partner is going to overrule you. That's an extortion scam. Well, that's exactly right. And they, and it, it's going for twenty five hundred dollars a pop now. Right. And which it, it, you can afford, but multiplied by a million users is right. is is huge. Um, you know, it's mostly about the money, uh, but it's a little bit about um, free expression and. Um, uh, continued access to, of the network to everybody, for everybody. There's, you know, been, I, I sometimes wonder what if they wanted to eliminate .is so that Israel couldn't be uniquely identified on the network anymore. So what's happening in, in, um, uh, in, in what happened in Istanbul is basically we're, we're trying to build that purple unicorn. Um, find a way to create a, a non-governmental organization that is accountable uh, to somebody outside of its own board. And that's hard to do. Um, right now, oversight of the board is, is through the contract to the U.S., which uses kind of soft power to influence it. Uh, but that contract, they say, is going to go away. So uh, I, we spent some time doing things like trying to design a binding arbitral review panel. And um, so who would who would be... Running this arbitral review panel. Well, if I have my way, we're right. going to set it up as close as uh, as close as models we can to you know Article Three of the U.S. Constitution. You know, uh, judges who can only be removed for good cause, uh, a, a a budget line item that can't be reduced by ICANN. Uh, how they're selected, that's going to be an interesting issue, but. I, I, there have to be five neutral arbiters that you can get. And from what are they going to arbitrate? Well, that's the that's the other thing that I'm I, I think is really important. Um, besides, you know, uh, right now they have an arbitral panel that that uh, decides what you and I would call standard commercial disputes. I lost the bidding for dot sucks. You won. Right. They didn't follow the process. Give me relief. Um, the thing that this will do is this, uh, is tied to another effort, which is to much more tightly and narrowly define what it is ICANN does. And more importantly, define what it's not going to do. Because right now, ICANN essentially is bound only by an obligation to manage the domain name system in the public interest, which is basically like Truth, justice, and and, and that's the, the, they they decided that the, it was in their interest, their financial interest. Certainly, I can't. Financial interest has been well served yes. by by creating all of these new dot sucks. Exactly, domains. exactly. So, so one of the other mission, one of the other things that's going on is an effort to um to write a, a very uh, narrow mission statement for what I can 
is supposed to do. Well, nothing would have stopped. The, surely, nothing would have stopped the creation of that sucks, right? Uh, nothing. Not, I, I, you know, I can't. I can't create a purple unicorn with two horns because then it's just not a unicorn. But for example, there's been some discussion about about ICANN taking its surplus profit and spending some of it on expanding broadband in Africa. Right. Which, you know, I think that it would be great for there to be more broadband in Africa. Let's, you know, but I don't think that that's how we want to spend ICANN money. Uh, I, you know, education, all these wonderful touchy feel things. If we can um, narrow it down, because fundamentally it kind of gets back to the first thing. This is all about money more than anything else. Uh-huh. And if we give them a monopoly on, you know, a, a money printing press, uh, without restricting what they, how much money they can take in and what they spend it on, then shame on us. Um, I think the other, the other thing that's really kind of amusing is, um, uh, you know, I can, the corporation is incorporated in the state of California. Right. And that's because the guys who invented the internet were there and, and, right. uh, and it's a nonprofit, so it's subject to the attorney general's oversight. It's a right? public benefit corporation. It can be sued, sue and be sued in, in California. But of course, it can sue and be sued in any, country in which it does business and um it spends most of its uh it, it, it most of its contracts specify the applicable law some of them are subject in Europe are subject to arbitration in London some of them here apply California law so the only real import of where it is incorporated is that that uh determines its corporate form right, right. How, well where, I, no, no, I think i think kamala harris could have decided that she was going to get all up in the uh, face of uh, mm-hmm. uh, ICANN about uh, uh its activities uh, and uh, that would have been consistent with california law right i think that's right though they'd have to have broken pretty far from where they're supposed to be but the 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 fun thing of course is that um in a what I consider to be nothing more than a fit of anti-Americanism. Um, there's a there's a move amongst many to uh, require as part of this transition that I can, you know, disincorporate. Is that the mm-hmm. right word? Well, yeah, yeah, disincorporate in California and reincorporate in Switzerland, Sweden, Iceland. Pick your pick your neutral European country, um, probably European. And you know, it, it really because the only thing that really is determined by state of incorporation is kind of corporate accountability stuff. Right. Well, uh, who runs the board? Yeah. It, but it, you know, it, it is, I actually think, and this is just me, that it's a, a secret plan to try and make the transition fail so that they can blame the United States and take it to the UN. That's, yeah. that's, okay. that's, 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 that's my, that's my So theory. at the end of the day, what did Istanbul decide or, well, this is I can't. They didn't decide they anything. They didn't decide anything. But I think what's going to come out of this whole review process is a functional community oversight board that looks over the actual executive board of the corporation, a narrowly defined mission statement, and an independent review panel. And then it's going to be up to the U.S. government to decide whether that's enough. Okay. So they, they will sit and say, okay, have you done enough to, to insulate this from political interference or capture by a group of people who just want to profit from personally from the operations of the, uh, the institution? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, one of the other things is that it's, it's likely to be a relatively small political football in the, um, in, in the upcoming elections if it doesn't get done quickly, it doesn't get done soon because, you know, uh, Ted Cruz has already said that he's, he would want to prohibit 
the offshoring of ICANN. Oh, and okay. um, well, that would be interesting. Okay, see, see, I, I got you interested yeah. now that it's a politics thing. Yeah, I, um, I can I can see how you could you could sell that as a as a yeah, it's, a, it's America's internet. Right. We're not going to give it up to no damn furners. Yeah. Um, right. yeah. That, it, 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 so that's that's going to be a little bit. And, and I, actually, I, it's particularly interesting because, of course, this policy of offshoring started under Bill Clinton. Yes. So, we've, been, we've been at this a long time. Yeah. So, uh, so Mrs. Clinton owns this offshoring as well, unless she's going to go back on her husband's word. Uh, so that'll make it something. Yeah. All right. Um, so you got one other new paper I saw. You found 50 or 100 uh, uh, breaches mm-hmm. that the government, uh, uh, government computers and networks had, had suffered, and said, uh, "Who are these guys to be telling us uh, yeah. how to how to secure our network?" Well, this is just part of a series of papers that I've been writing for about three years. I have a couple of research assistants who help, and they're all just open source stuff. And we we collect IG reports and newspaper reports. And you know, if you go back to 2012, I think when we started, we're probably up to. 105, 103, uh, public reports of breaches, one form or another. They range, you know, across the data breach from lost computers with unencrypted files all the way up to, um, you know, the fact that the Chinese were completely inside NASA's computers for about two years mm-hmm. and NASA didn't know. Not NSA, NASA, but, you know. So, uh, you know, it is, it is, I think, an interesting question. Whether or not we should rely upon federal rulemakers or standard setters whose own inability to protect the networks kind of demonstrates a lack of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know you're, you're it's a bit of a cheap shot. Come on, okay. you know, exactly. It is certainly a cheap shot because, uh, uh, you know, uh, the SEC uh, is full of people who've never made a billion dollars investing, uh, uh, and uh, and we don't say, well, therefore you can't regulate uh, investors uh, or companies that sell to investors. Shouldn't we? Well, <laughs> I, it, you know, I I I think it's quite possible to say I know bad behavior when I see it, even if I'm not always capable of carrying out uh, uh, these things myself. I think the only difference is, is that the SEC prohibits bad behavior. The cyber system is in the business of trying to mandate good behavior or or guide good behavior, and it, it I I think that that's that is a difference. You know, it's easy to say thou shalt not murder, even though you've never killed anybody. Right. Um, but it's very hard to say this is the right way to protect your house with locks and bars when your own house with the locks and the bars on it is getting broken into all the time. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, surely there are plenty of times when you say, uh, I know what to do. I just don't know actually how to execute it. I'm not good at executing, which is largely the problem that the federal government has. Okay. So, so we, we've got the, we've got the gold standards, we, but we've got the bronze execution. Group. I, uh, yeah, I, I completely believe that. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, two quick questions as we get ready to finish up here. Uh, did you see that Time Magazine said, uh, gee, uh, uh, this German wings, uh, disaster suggests that, uh, uh, the Germans are paying a price for their privacy law. Uh, and I think the argument was, uh, um, um, uh, Lufthansa couldn't find out mm-hmm. the health status mm-hmm. of their pilot uh, because of heavy protections on sensitive data like uh, uh, like psychiatric or even physical ailments. Uh, I thought, I, you know, I 
I'm usually quick to say, yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say, I'm not willing to go there. I was going to say, even you, Stuart, cannot go that far. But it, look, I understand why there's a privacy interest in medical information. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was you who once told me that the, the, the two things that you, you, you never knew about even your best friend were his finances or his health. Uh, it was his sex life, but I, know, I, I was I was I was editing you a bit for for the broadcast, but okay, yeah, it was his sex life as well. Um, so that makes your baker's dozen, doesn't it? For, I think it does, uh, for, yes. But um, and and I also really do believe that um, it is a bit more enlightened to to not say, oh my God, you've been to a psychiatrist, you can't ever fly again, uh, which is the Danger yeah, reaction, right? Yeah, the, 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 so, but that having been said, and uh, I think that Germany is going to have to review some of this a bit and just see if there's any gaps that, that, uh, well, it's to be clear filled. that they're having trouble with it now. That basically they've got the hospital saying, we can't tell you anything about this guy, even though he's dead or the treatments. We're only going to talk to the prosecutors. Uh, mm-hmm. And that probably isn't the, an ideal outcome. Uh, so maybe there will be some reconsideration of this. Well, th- there should be. I mean, uh, on the other hand, I'm not, it's not at all clear to me that had he disclosed this under a rational policy, he would have been right. uh, removed. Right. Okay, so last question. When you came in here, you said something about uh, Alibaba in Silicon Valley. Uh, I've got to ask, uh, what's going on? Oh well, this is this is actually great. And it and you know what was it uh, a year and a half ago? You and I, I was here and we were talking about the Microsoft case at, in Ireland, mm-hmm. right? And the idea that the U.S. government could order Microsoft to disclose. Uh, data about an Irishman held in an yep. Irish data center, irregardless of Irish law. Um, I think who says Amazon must say Alibaba? Alibaba is opening a big data center in Silicon Valley where they are going to solicit American corporations and American customers to reside their data. And, of course, if you follow the logic, it would be perfectly permissible for the Chinese government to order Alibaba to disclose information about Americans stored in uh, Silicon Valley, stored in on a on an Alibaba server in Silicon Valley, irregardless of American privacy law, and you know we would have absolutely no intellectual capacity, uh, uh, consistency capacity at all to say no to that. I, I think that's probably right. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, Michael just had to head out because uh, he would love to be able to work that into the next Amicus brief. He should. Uh, yeah. But. He should. Okay. Um, uh, finishing up, we always give our guests an opportunity to plug upcoming speeches, stories, articles. You got anything coming up? Um, I've got a a good article coming out uh, with Michael Chertoff. Uh, through the um, Chatham House and the Global Commission on Internet Governance about that very issue, about the need to uh, try and find some way to at least have international choice of law issues uh, pretty well defined. Um, I, it's, a, it's a fool's game and we'll never get there, but at least we get to talk about it a bit and, and uh, he gets a free trip to London out of it. Oh, okay. Um, and um, on April 30th, in New York City, I will be talking at the Council of Foreign Relations, and there I will be talking about uh, what happens when computers break the law, or uh, what, if any, law should apply to truly autonomous 
uh, uh, thinking machines. Oh, yes. Yeah. So there have been some agents that have gone onto uh, the dark net and you know, bought random things. Uh, mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, basically anything you could buy for a Bitcoin or less, they just bought it. They didn't know what the, the, the person who sent them out didn't know what they were going to come back with. And mm-hmm. they came back with all kinds of weird stuff and some of it illegal. So, yeah. Yes. So, uh, you know, so what law, who, who's responsible? Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. It's like, it, it's, well, who's responsible when your self-driving car drives over somebody? Well, uh, probably uh, you or Google. Yeah, that's my guess too. Uh, okay. Uh, and, uh, I've got a couple of speeches coming up. I'm, uh, uh, April 20 or so. I'm giving a speech out near RSA, uh, uh, for, uh, for Microsoft. Uh, I've got a speech coming up thereafter in Kentucky, uh, uh, cybersecurity speech, uh, uh, I'm on a panel at Stanford June 2nd or 3rd uh, uh, talking about cybersecurity. So uh, a fair number of speeches coming up out of the city. Thank you, Paul. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, and as a reminder, the Cyber Law Podcast is open for comment. Uh, questions, suggestions, um, uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. And if you want to leave a message, uh, uh, we really have... Still, not one person has sent a really entertaining and abusive, uh, or really just entertaining, uh, uh, voicemail message. Um, but we're still, ho- we're still holding the line open at 202-862-5785. This has been episode 60 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we're going to be jo- joined by Joe Nye, who's the former head of the National Intelligence Council and author of Is the American Century Over? Uh, coming soon after him, Dmitry Alperovich from CrowdStrike, Alan Cohn, the Assistant Secretary for Strategy Planning Analysis and Risk from the DHS Office of Policy, Mary DeRosa, who once famously described my uh, objection to the, the lawyering of uh, 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 national security issues as uh, my self-loathing problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, um, uh, Bruce Schneier, cryptographer, computer security uh, guru, and privacy specialist and writer. Uh, all of them coming up in the next six weeks. Uh, we hope you'll join us. Uh, next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.